ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 27th of February. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. One of New South Wales Parliament's most prominent gay politicians has spoken out against the Sydney Mardi Gras decision to ask police officers not to march in Saturday's annual parade. Mardi Gras organisers say if New South Wales police take part in the march, it will intensify feelings of sorrow and distress among the queer community, already deeply affected by the recent alleged murders of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. But independent MP Alex Greenwich has told a the Mardi Gras should reverse that decision. Oliver Gordon with more. In a statement explaining its decision, the Mardi Gras board says if New South Wales police march at this weekend's parade, it will intensify feelings of sorrow and distress among the queer community, already deeply affected by recent events. New South Wales Independent MP Alex Greenwich, who's a part of Sydney's LGBTQI community, says that's the wrong approach. I hope that work is done uh, to see if this decision can in any way be reversed. Uh, Mardi Gras as a board is entitled to make its th- the decisions that it does. Um, however, I would like to see the police march in Mardi Gras. His calls are being backed by Upper House New South Wales Liberal MP Jackie Munro, who's called on New South Wales Premier Chris Minns to pull funding from the event following the decision. Absolutely, because Mardi Gras should be an inclusive place. New South Wales police officers who are LGBTQI plus and allies in the police force are those who best represent the kind of progress that we want to see made in our police force and on our front line. So the idea that the government is supporting something where an organisation has told a a whole organisation based on the actions of a few to stand in the naughty corner is unacceptable. There's obvious context here and in the Mardi Gras statement they say our community needs space to grieve the loss of Jesse and Luke who before this tragedy would have been here celebrating with us at the festival. Do you accept that this community needs space to grieve the loss of Jesse and Luke and they're making this decision based on that? I think that what happened to Jesse and Luke is horrible. It's a tragic and sad situation and I can understand the need to grieve for these people. To make the logical leap that therefore the New South Wales Police Force, the LGBTQI plus officers and their allies who are part of that organisation should also not participate seems entirely not only unjustified but actually a backward step. Alex Greenwich says many in his community are struggling following the recent alleged murders of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies and those looking for support should reach out for help. Those who are feeling um, distressed, those who did know um, Luke uh, and or Jesse I need to know that there is help there for them. And Q Life is a free peer support um, uh, counselling and referral service, which I encourage those impacted to to contact. In a statement, a New South Wales police spokesperson said the organisation will continue to work closely with the LGBTQIA plus community and remain committed to working with organisers to provide a safe environment for all those participating in and supporting this Saturday's parade. Oliver Gordon there.
For the first time, the data of nearly 5,000 private companies has been made public, highlighting the size of the gender pay gap. Qantas, A2 Milk, AGL Energy, Lendlease and Woodside were among those named as having the biggest gender pay gap in the country. But Coles, Woolworths and Rio Tinto all reported pay disparity well under 10%. The federal government hopes the new transparency will pressure employers to take more action. Here's Isabel Masali. Not many people like to share the details of what's in their pay packet, but these Perth workers are pretty confident their employer doesn't have a gender pay gap issue. But will they still check out a new website that could reveal otherwise? Sure, of course. (laughs) I can't imagine it would make a difference for me, but it might make a difference for other people in the office, Um, yeah, who are more junior perhaps, I don't know. Um, Just out of curiosity, yeah. Because I know, like, previous jobs of mine, they didn't pay me fairly, so, yeah. (laughs) Gender pay gap data for Australian organisations with more than 100 employees is now listed on the website for the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. The change is part of federal reforms passed last year. The agency's CEO, Mary Wooldridge, explains. It looks at both the pay levels but also the composition of workplaces. So if you've got a lot of men earning at the highest level uh, and a lot of women earning at the lowest level, which is reflective of a number of industries, uh, you will have a very high gender pay gap in that context. The challenge is is that women and men don't have equal opportunities uh, in the workplace. The goal is for a gap within 5%, but nearly two-thirds of employers have a gap beyond that and in favour of men. The sector with the highest median gender pay gap, which is what we're releasing today, is the construction industry, and that's over 30%. So what that means is for uh, every man who works in the construction industry, uh, who uh, for a dollar that they earn, women are earning less than 70 cents in that industry. Um, The other industries with high gaps are the financial and insurance services, professional and scientific firms, These are industries that are often uh, have a high proportion of men in them or particularly a high proportion of men who earn at the highest level. Dr Leonora Rees is an economist who specialises in gender equality at the University of Canberra. She welcomes the data's public release, but cautions. What some employers might be thinking is that, okay, now this information is in the hands of employees, of individual women, to then go into their uh, negotiations and to bargain uh, uh, more strongly for a pay rise. What we see from the research is that it really takes a organisation level cultural wide change to bring about gender equality improvements. The data will be published annually and allows employers to provide a statement about their result and what actions they may be taking. Isabel Masali there. And on RN Breakfast after 7.30, Sally Sara speaks to the President of Chief Executive Women, Susan Lloyd-Hurwitz. While talks between Israel and Hamas for a pause in the war in Gaza are underway in Qatar, there's been a major shake-up in Palestinian politics. The Palestinian Prime Minister, Mohammed Shatayi, and his entire government that runs the occupied West Bank has resigned. Meanwhile, the north of Gaza has been cut off to aid agencies, leaving tens of thousands of people with nothing to eat. Nicole Johnston has more. The north of Gaza is a wasteland. Neighbourhoods razed to the ground and roads destroyed. 
but there are still tens of thousands of Palestinians living there with nothing. Aid agencies warn people are starving and there are no medical supplies there either. Dr Rick Brennan is the Regional Emergency Director for the World Health Organisation in the Eastern Mediterranean and he's recently been in Gaza. It's been terribly difficult to get aid into the north over recent weeks. WHO ourselves, we haven't been able to launch a mission for a couple of weeks now, but everything we hear is really catastrophic. What about the rest of the Gaza Strip? Is any aid getting in, any medical supplies? Well, certainly not at the level that's required. Uh, We're still under 200 trucks a day, and even before the conflict, we were estimating around 500 trucks a day, and that's the standard that we're setting ourselves. But it's not just getting the trucks and supplies across the border. It's then, of course, distributing them within Gaza to the hospitals and clinics and people in need. And that's proven extremely difficult uh, for a, a number of reasons insecurity, denial of movement on occasion by Israeli defence forces, damaged roads and and so on. So it's a complex situation and the aid effort is nowhere near where it needs to be at the present time. Israel says it's not to blame for any aid shortages. It says it's up to international aid groups to sort it out. Meanwhile, in the West Bank, the Palestinian Prime Minister and Cabinet are out. They've resigned. But the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, is staying. Mahama Abu Sada is a political analyst from Al-Azhar University in Gaza. He's now in Cairo. He says US President Joe Biden called for a new Palestinian authority, or PA, Mahama Abu Sada. His vision is a Palestinian state next to the state of Israel. But in order to do that, uh, he uh, pushed for what he called it revitalised PA, meaning that the PA must fight uh, corruption, must come with uh, a new leadership. And one of the things to revitalize the PA is to come up with a new government, a government that will be mandated with the so-called day after. The question is, when will it end? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says there's still weeks of war to go and it will continue until Hamas's top leaders are killed. Talks for a temporary truce are underway in Qatar. They've been going on for weeks and getting nowhere. Nicole Johnston there. Australia's nickel industry remains locked in a state of upheaval, leaving communities that rely on the metal with serious doubts about their future. BHP's Nickel West is the main employer in the small remote WA town of Leinster. The mining giant is considering shutting down operations there and locals say they're worried and waiting for answers. John Daly reports. The nickel industry has a long history in the gold fields. We've been here for 50 years. A long history and a future in serious doubt. Global prices for nickel have almost halved in the last year, which has spelled trouble for Australia's higher cost producers. BHP's Nickel West business employs more than 3,000 people in WA's Goldfields region. And now the company is considering closing it all down. Leonora Shire President Peter Craig says locals are anxiously waiting for answers. You're just putting people's lives on hold. Now they've been told, well, we don't know what we're doing, but we'll just we'll just wait and see for a bit, eh? The company's mining and processing operations virtually employ the whole town of Leinster, about 850 kilometres northeast of Perth. Since BHP made the announcement on the ASX a few weeks ago, Peter Craig says there's been no community meetings or any other information provided to the people of Leinster. There has not been an advertise for a community meeting. 
It is, it is poor for the world's biggest mining company. In a statement to AM, BHP says it's acting urgently to reduce costs and review operations and that it will continue to engage with the community and directly with councils over the coming months. The changing fortunes of WA's nickel industry also have consequences for the mining city of Kalgoorlie, about 350 kilometres south of Leinster, where Nickel West runs a smelter. Everybody's talking about it. That's Kalgoorlie real estate agency owner Chris Hoycart. She says Kalgoorlie has a thriving gold sector to fall back on if BHP's nickel smelter closes. But Chris Hoycard has seen the effects of falling commodity prices before. Well, people that are in rental properties um, bring their keys in and say, we don't have a job anymore, we've got to leave town. Um, and, and it does have an effect on property prices and there's no doubt about that. So the halving of the nickel price in the last year is the result of cheaper supplies of the metal from Indonesia. Mining analyst Peter Strachan says the nickel industry is facing a disruption bigger than the normal ups and downs in commodity prices. Nickel is going through very much a, uh, a structural change. 70% of the world's nickel is used to make stainless steel, used in white goods or the kitchen sink. Thanks to a tax deal with Chinese steelmakers, Indonesia is using a new and 30% cheaper way to process its nickel ore. Several Chinese organisations have come over and spent tens of billions of dollars to process that nickel, low-grade nickel oxide. And while state and federal governments say they'll help producers by reducing royalties and taxes, Peter Strachan says that support might be in vain. John Daly there. New data shows that while organ donations increased over the last year, experts believe they still haven't returned to pre-COVID levels. But one transplant program focusing solely on live kidney donations has broken all previous records. Rachel Carbonell reports. Belinda Newick always hoped she wouldn't need a transplant, but at 48 years old, the jewellery artist and mother of two was on the brink of renal failure. I just had so much fatigue and a, a lot of pain and then I was getting quite breathless. Along with two of her siblings, Belinda Newick inherited the polycystic kidney disease that runs in her family. Her mum died from the disease at age 62 after 15 years on dialysis. Tell me about this family. Oh, so this is me coming home from hospital. I think she was starting to become unwell. In Australia, about 14,000 people are on dialysis and many of them are waiting for a kidney. Most come from deceased donors. The rest are provided by live donors, usually a friend or family member. In Belinda Newick's case, her husband, Nick O'Kelly, wanted to give her one of his kidneys, but he wasn't a close match. I mean, that was the hope that all of my statistics and blood type and antibodies would be a direct, you know, suitable match. The couple turned to the Australian-New Zealand Paired Kidney Exchange. It's a program that allows people who want to donate a kidney to a loved one but aren't a good medical match to be paired with others in the same situation. After months of waiting, the couple got a life-changing phone call. Nico Kelly could donate his kidney to a stranger and by doing so, secure a kidney for his wife. Yeah, it was a shock. Suddenly kind of changed everything. It was really one of those um, tipping point kind of moments in life. Last year, the program had its busiest year yet, with 55 Australian and 25 New Zealanders stepping forward to become donors for those in need of a new kidney. Program director Peter Hughes says these kidney recipients avoid the deceased donor wait list, which is years long, and he says there are medical advantages too. Overall, living donor transplants tend to do a bit better in the long term. The program also accepts what's known as altruistic donations. They don't have anyone in particular to donate to, and that can set off a, a chain or a cascade. Stephen Liston was one of those donors. 
I don't know and I will never know who my kidney went to. Last year, a donation like that set off a chain of transplants that is this year expected to break a new Australian record when the 20th patient receives a new kidney. Where possible, the surgery for donors and transplant recipients happens on the same day. When Nico Kelly and Belinda Newick went in, they had two teenagers waiting at home and the whole family was worried. But the result has been worth it. Yeah, it was pretty miraculous transformation in terms of, you know, going into hospital with very poor levels at stage five kidney failure and, you know, by the next day when the doctors came and gave me my results, you know, it was there's nothing, no other word other than miraculous because it's such a such a change. That's kidney transplant recipient Belinda Newick ending that report from Rachel Carbonell. Today marks the end of the political career of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison after 16 years in federal parliament. Announcing his departure last month, Mr Morrison says he will go on to work in the global corporate sector. Ahead of his valedictory speech in federal parliament today, political reporter Chantelle Alcouri looks back at his time in the top job. What one word pops into your head when I say Scott Morrison? Scott Morrison went from ads so everybody, how are you? to federal politics when he was elected into federal parliament in 2007. As the immigration minister under Tony Abbott, he made his mark with Operation Sovereign Borders, a policy long veiled in secrecy. We've made the rules about how we convey information on these operational matters. Known for snappy slogans and theatrics in Parliament... This is coal. Don't be afraid. Scott Morrison went on to be Social Services Minister, presiding over the unlawful scheme now known as robo-debt. He then became a main player in the Liberal Party infighting that saw Malcolm Turnbull topple Tony Abbott and eventually saw Morrison take the top job. Any leadership ambitions? Me? Yeah. This is my leader. After winning the 2019 election, public sentiment quickly turned against the PM after he took a family trip to Hawaii during the Black Summer bushfires. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate. Then there was the COVID pandemic. It's not a race. Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU says while the PM's performance eventually broke down over failures with the vaccine rollout, he initially confronted the crisis well. We really saw some national leadership from Scott Morrison that had been lacking in the bushfires. The Morrison Prime Ministership was plagued by what he later described as a clumsy approach to women's issues. That ramped up in 2021, which began with sexual assault allegations from former Coalition staffer Brittany Higgins. Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father. Thousands of women marched across the country. Not far from here, such marches even now are being met with bullets. On the international stage, he often faltered like fracturing ties with China. And while he secured the AUKUS submarine deal, it came at the expense of blindsiding the French president, Emmanuel Macron. You think he lied to you? I don't think. I know. While he tried to reinvent his image during the 2022 election campaign... Take me to the the coalition was voted out after almost a decade in Parliament and Morrison took his seat on the backbench. Shortly after, it was revealed he'd secretly appointed himself into five separate portfolios without informing his colleagues. Now the former PM will leave politics. I don't think he's going to be remembered as one of the great success stories of Australian politics or as a great reforming Prime Minister. Voters in the electorate of Cook will soon head to the polls for a by-election. Chantel Alcouri with that report. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 
We've probably all experienced a less than desirable ride on public transport, but for people with a disability, every day can be an absolute horror show. Today we bring you an ABC investigation into how millions of Australians are being let down by our public transport networks. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.